We're in our message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in the order the events happened, because we want to know Jesus, what he really said, what he really did, who he really was, in his word for ourselves. We don't want to hear about it from someone else. We want to see it for ourselves. Last week, we heard an incredible offer from Jesus that if we will make him our priority above everything else, he will make sure we have everything else we need. And we heard some very straightforward commands from Jesus to not worry or have an anxious mind. And if you missed that message, I want to encourage you to go listen to it on the website or the podcast, especially if you're dealing with any type of anxiety or worry about the future. This week, Jesus is going to continue sharing some very direct teachings about the fact that he is going to leave the earth. He's with his disciples at this time. He's telling them, I'm going to leave the earth. I'm going to come back again in the future. At this point in his ministry, the Bible tells us he set his face toward Jerusalem and he's making his final journey toward Jerusalem, final because when he reaches Jerusalem, it will begin the Passion Week, that week leading up to his crucifixion and death. And as Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, he's now becoming more and more direct, more and more blunt. He's speaking very plainly and now is the time in his ministry where he's telling people, you need to make a decision. I either am who I say I am, I am the son of God, I am the one who can save you from your sins, or I'm not. But you can no longer follow me just because I'm interesting or you wanna see what I'm gonna do or what I'm gonna say. You have to make a decision. The honeymoon season of his ministry is essentially over. And one of the things we're gonna be talking about today, just so you know, is a little bit of what's known as eschatology. Eschatology is just the study of the end times in the Bible, what's going to take place at the end of the world. And we're gonna share some things, they may be different to your view, but we're gonna teach our view, and whatever your view is, I just wanna encourage you to have one, and to have your view for a good reason. So if you disagree with what we believe about the way the Bible talks about the end times, I would encourage you not to have reasons that begin with phrases like, I think, or I feel, but to have a system of beliefs that you can begin explaining by saying, because the Bible says blank, I believe this. Because if you're in pursuit of truth, your feelings are irrelevant, and honestly, your thoughts are irrelevant. You have to examine it for what it is and deal with what is there in front of you. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Luke 12. We are going to finish Luke 12 today. I'm confident of this. We're going to begin in verse 35, which says, Jesus speaking, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And this seems like a good time to review what it means to be girded or to gird your loins. You've probably seen some sort of illustration or painting of what men typically wore around the time of Jesus. It was basically a robe. And if you wanted to do any work or you wanted to run fast, it could be very difficult to do in a baggy robe. So the solution was to gird yourself. And here's what that means. Let's put that illustration on there. And so basically what you do is you'd have your robe and you would hike it up, pull it out, pull it between your legs, pull it around, tie it, and it would basically be like a giant diaper. But you would be ready to run around and violently attack people as the last square in that illustration makes abundantly clear. So when Jesus says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, he's painting a picture of a person at night who is ready for action. He has his lamp so he can see what's going on and he's got his robe girded so he's ready to move about. He's ready to do stuff. In verse 36, we read this. And you yourselves, speaking to his disciples and to us, be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, underline knocks, they may open to him 
immediately, underline immediately. So instead of someone who has their robe down and they don't have a lamp burning and they're just ready to sleep, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you need to be ready for action. And I want to suggest to you the action Jesus is referring to is serving. When Jesus talks about waiting for their master, he's not talking about sitting around doing nothing. If that were true, then they wouldn't need to gird their robes. They would be waiting and doing nothing. Jesus is talking about waiting the same way that a waiter would wait. We don't call him a waiter because he sits around doing nothing. We call him a waiter because he waits, which is an older English word for serving, showing hospitality. And you'll recall that in John 13, the night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus girded himself to wash the feet of his disciples. He waited on them. Not only that, but the word used by Jesus for wait there when he says be like those who wait means to wait in a way that gives credence. We would say credibility to the thing someone is waiting for. And let me just give an example. So if someone says to you, the world is about to collapse and all the governments are about to collapse and the end of the world is nigh. They tell you that and they have spent all their money building an underground shelter, hoarding food for two years. You might think they're crazy, but you're going to listen to what they have to say because they actually put their money where their mouth is. Compared to the person who says, the world is about to end, governments are about to collapse, it's going to be the apocalypse, and we're all going to be here, and it's going to be terrible. And you say, well, what are you doing about it? And they say, oh, nothing. One of those people is waiting for something in a way that gives credibility to what they're waiting for. They're actually doing things that show they really believe that's going to happen. The other person says it's going to happen, but when you look at their life, you're like, there's nothing about your life that shows you actually believe things are going to unfold that way. So Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to wait in a way that gives credibility to the belief that I'm coming back. The way you wait needs to give that credibility. So you put this all together, and I want to suggest this to you. It's your first fill-in. Jesus expects his disciples to be actively serving when he returns. Actively serving when he returns. And that's just a very subtle verse just to point out Jesus does not expect that when he returns he will find his disciples hiding in bunkers underground waiting for the end of the world or living alone in a commune in the middle of nowhere. He says you're going to be actively serving when he comes. Serving your spouse, serving your family, serving your church, serving the kingdom. And now we learn that Jesus' disciples are to be waiting as friends or servants of a bridegroom, the way servants and friends of a bridegroom would wait for his return from a wedding. So the idea is they've got their lamps lit, they've got their robes girded, and as soon as their master knocks on the door, they're not going to be going, oh, 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 man, just hide the stuff. There's nothing going on here. How you doing? How you doing? They're ready. They're ready for his return. They're ready to open the door the moment that he knocks because they've been anticipating his arrival. And we also pick up that his arrival is going to be very instantaneous. Did you notice it said there will be a knock and they will open the door to him immediately, immediately. Those of you who have been through our Revelation study, this will trigger something in your memory, hopefully. And on your own time, I want to encourage you, go and compare what Jesus is saying here, the idea that there'll be a knock and they'll open the door immediately. Compare that to what he says to the last day's church, the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.20, and then compare that to what happens in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, which is where we'd say the rapture takes place. You're going to find some very familiar verbiage in there, similar verbiage. So Jesus isn't just passionate about good customer service. He's not like, I want you to be waiting because that makes you guys look good. He's making a point here, and this is where he connects the story he's told 
to reality. He says, I've told you a story about a master, about servants, about a returning master. Let me really connect this to reality, to your reality. Verse 37, he says, blessed, underline blessed, are those servants whom the master, underline when, when, because it's a certainty, when he comes, will find and then underline watching. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. So let's just state the obvious here. What points have been made by Jesus in the story so far? Well, there's a master who's been with his servants for a time, and that master has now left. But the master is going to return, and his return is a certainty. What the master wants his servants to be doing while he's away is getting ready for his return, anticipating his return. And those servants who took things seriously and got themselves ready are going to end up being blessed specifically because they were anticipating his return and ready for it. I don't think there's anything I've said there that's stretching anything that's written. That's a very direct reading of what's there. And if you've been a believer for maybe more than a year, you shouldn't even need a pastor to explain this to you. Jesus, our master, was here, he was with his disciples, walked the earth, and then he went away. He returned to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit in his place. But he didn't go away forever. He's gone away for a predetermined amount of time. The Bible says the Father knows the exact day that he's going to tell Jesus, okay, time to go get your church. On that day, Jesus will return. It's a certainty And he's going to come for his church. And he intends to specifically reward those believers with a special blessing who have been living their lives as though he really was coming back. You know, it breaks my heart that much of mainstream Christianity today calls the kind of thinking and the kind of behavior that Jesus is calling for here. Most churches will call that escapism and openly mock it in the church. They'll say things like, you're too focused on the future. You've got I'll fly away syndrome. Too focused on the end times, the coming of Christ. You should be focused on the here and now. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. 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 And in fact, 2 Timothy 4.8 tells us, I'll put it on your outline, there's a specific reward, a specific crown awaiting those who long for the coming of Jesus. You know, if you love someone and they go away, but you know they're going to be coming back at some point in the future, wouldn't you be watching for them? Wouldn't you be watching for them? We love Jesus, and we want to see him face to face more than anything. I can't wait to be in his presence. We love him more than anything, so yeah, I'm, I'm watching for him, and I hope you are too. Write this down. Jesus expects his disciples to be watching for his return to be watching for his return. He doesn't expect us to have the attitude, I don't get into all that end time stuff. I don't really try to follow when Jesus is coming back. Really? You don't care about the possible return in your lifetime of the one you love more than anyone else? And now we run into another one of these verses that it's just so shocking, it's almost disturbing on the surface. For just as Jesus served his disciples at the Last Supper by washing their feet, Jesus intends to serve us to check this out, meditate on this. Jesus says, assuredly, take this to the bank. I say to you that he, the master, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. That's staggering. Staggering. I don't know what to add to these astounding words of Jesus. He's literally saying that he, the king of kings, will serve his servants. 
you and I. Ponder that. What do you do with that? I expect that I'll probably be like Peter who says, you're not going to wash my feet. You can't do that. It's not right. But he will. And, and when you really think on this, you begin to understand why Peter reacted that way, don't you? How odd would that be to have Jesus wash your feet? It would just feel so wrong. But it's the truth. As he washed his disciples' feet on the earth, he's going to serve each one of us too, individually, as he welcomes us into eternity. What does that look like exactly? I don't know. I can't wait to find out. As I was thinking on this, I just want to pause and and just point this out. When you read this, who is like Jesus? Who's like Jesus, even among the pantheon of false gods, among literary deities? Where do you find a king of kings who does this? An almighty God who reigns as a servant king. You know, as a concept, as a philosophical idea, as a spiritual construct. This is something that I don't think even exists as a possibility in the minds of men. This is not something we could even come up with. An almighty God who reigns as a servant king. Serves those he saves. He's something else. He's something completely set apart. There's... There's just no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. Verse 38, it says, Jesus talking about the master. And if he should come in the second watch, which would have been about 9 p.m. to midnight, or come in the third watch, which would have been midnight to 3 a.m., and find them so, if he finds them watching for his return, blessed are those servants. So for those who would say, why are you expecting and watching for Jesus? Christians have been watching for the return of Christ for centuries. I would point to this verse and say, Well, Jesus calls those who are watching for his return blessed, regardless of when they're watching for him. You know, the Apostle Paul expected Jesus to come in his lifetime. So did all of the other disciples, all the apostles, all the early church fathers. Martin Luther, John Calvin expected it. Practically every major leader in the global church expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime, with the exception of about the last 50 to 75 years. And whatever happens in our lifetime, I'm glad to take my place among men like that, believing that Jesus is coming back in my lifetime because Jesus says, I'll be blessed, you'll be blessed if we're watching for his return. As a side note, I can't resist pointing this out. You do with this what you want. There's a subtle rebuttal here against mid-trib and post-trib eschatology. Let me explain those terms. So, Those who believe in the rapture, as we do, that Jesus is going to come and remove his church, everyone who believes in him and loves him from the earth before unleashing his wrath on the earth, there's going to be a period of seven years of enormous upheaval on the earth. The first three and a half years are really going to be marked by some pretty terrible things happening as the world comes under a revived Roman Empire and an Antichrist figure. About halfway through that seven-year period, some very specific things are going to happen, and in the back half... All hell breaks loose as the wrath of God's poured out on the earth. And so if you are pre-trib, you believe that God's going to remove his church before those seven years begins. If you are mid-trib, you believe he's going to remove his church halfway through those seven years. And if you're post-trib, you believe he's going to remove them at the end of those seven years. Pre-trib stands for pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, pick up a jump drive on Revelation. But here's the subtle rebuttal. 
there is more information in the Bible, more specifics about the age we live in now than any other time in history. The Bible talks more about the age we're living in now than any other time in history. And the Bible is packed in the books of Revelation and Daniel with very, very specific information about what's going to take place during those seven years. Those of you who went through Revelation with us, you know. We're like 16 weeks talking about stuff that's going to happen during those seven years. There's an incredible amount of very specific things that are going to happen. If you hold to a mid-trib or post-trib eschatology, you would know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Because the Bible even describes, as I said, some very specific things that will be unmistakable that are going to take place at the halfway point of the tribulation. So you could read this and if you say, well, Jesus is gonna come back halfway through the tribulation, you could just turn on the TV and you see that happening. You're like, it's today. This thing is happening today. You would see the events leading up to it. You would see Antichrist signing a peace treaty for seven years. You'd be like, okay, the clock is ticking. Three and a half years, Jesus is coming back. And if you're post-trib, you would know again, to the day, when Jesus is coming back. Because even if you calculated wrong from the beginning, you couldn't miss the event that takes place at the halfway point of those seven years. So if you're mid-trib or post-trib, you would know exactly when Jesus is coming back because there's so much specific information. But that's not how Jesus himself describes his return and his coming for his church. Jesus makes it clear that we can't know the day. We can know the season, but we can't know the day specifically. Jesus just said, if he should come in the second watch or in the third and find them so, blessed are those servants. So the blessing is for those servants who were ready for his return regardless of when it happened. And it doesn't make sense for Jesus to say that if he's coming halfway through those seven years or at the end of those seven years because we'd know exactly when he's coming. What do you need to watch for? You don't need to watch for Jesus. You need to watch for these events that are going to tell you he's about to come. In fact, just ahead in verse 40, we'll hear Jesus say it even more clearly. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he says that to his disciples, to believers. So if you hold to a mid-trib or post-trib eschatology, then you should know exactly when to expect him, which means it can't be true. Mid-trib and post-trib positions we would hold are missing the mark for a number of reasons, but one of them that's also worth mentioning is that mid-trib and post-trib doctrines deny an essential belief of the church that's known as the doctrine of imminence. Imminence, not eminence. Eminence means royalty. Imminence means happening immediately. The doctrine of imminence. And the doctrine of imminence is simply the belief that Jesus could return at any moment. And you can read through the whole New Testament. You can read through the words of Jesus in the Gospels. You can read through the writings of Peter, James, Paul, all the epistles. And you will find over and over and over again the exhortation, the encouragement to live a certain way because Jesus is coming back. And he could come back at any time. And that doctrine is in the New Testament because when you believe Jesus really is coming back, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you live. It frees you from the attachment to worldly things. It makes you realize you don't want to build a kingdom for yourself here. You don't want to store treasures for yourself here. You want to store treasures where you're going to spend eternity. And so I really believe, you to come to your own conclusion, when I read that, my personal belief, and I want to be clear, this is my personal belief, is that it is the will of God that every believer since the church was formed live under the doctrine of imminence because it changes the way you live. I don't think that all the apostles expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime because they were stupid or because the Holy Spirit allowed them to be deceived. 
I think the Holy Spirit intentionally allowed them to believe that because it changed the way they live. It increased their willingness to give up everything for the cause of the gospel. And I believe that's true through every season in history since the church was founded that the desire of the Lord is that every believer would live expecting the coming of Jesus because it changes the way that you live. Now what's also interesting is if you look at the age we live in, I also believe that as we approach this last season of history when Jesus really is coming back, it says in the book of Daniel, in the last days knowledge will increase. And what me and most other scholars hold that means is that in the last days, our understanding of the Bible is actually going to increase. And we've already seen that. We've mentioned this a lot. But do you realize we live in really the first generation of people who can take everything the Bible says about the end times literally? First generation. You can't take a prophecy about an army of 200 million people literally when there's 150 million people on the earth. You can't take it literally. It's the first time in history when you read about the descriptions of battles, about the descriptions of technology and biblical prophecy, we're able to say, yeah, we have that. We have that technology, we have that weaponry, we have that sort of interconnected network that could monitor people, and we have it all right now. We're the first generation that can take everything in biblical prophecy about the end times, literally, first generation. We're also probably the first or second generation, actually no, I'm sorry, third or fourth, that recognize that if you take what the Bible says about the end times literally, that's impossible to do unless Israel is a political nation again. Israel is all over the book of Revelation. Jerusalem, all over the book of Revelation. You can't take that literally unless Israel is a political nation. Before 1948, for almost 2,000 years, Israel doesn't exist. They exist as a people scattered across the earth. Israel is a wasteland. Mark Twain went there, wrote about it, and he said that there's nothing here. There's just dust and ruins. 1948, out of nowhere, as a result of the Holocaust and World War II, the United Nations, who's hated Israel ever since, has this one moment where God overwhelms them and causes them to give Israel a political nation. And Israel becomes a nation again, out of nowhere, after not existing for 2,000 years. We look at that and we go, well, this is amazing because the things in Revelation couldn't come to pass until Israel was a political nation. So you have to ask, well, did every great Bible teacher for almost 2,000 years before that moment just miss it? Were they just too stupid to see it? Was it just too hard to believe? And I would contend that no, the Holy Spirit just hid that from them because he wanted them to live under the doctrine of imminence. He didn't want them to say, oh, Israel's not a nation yet, so Jesus isn't coming back in my lifetime, so there's really nothing urgent about this. He wanted every believer to live under the doctrine of imminence, believing that Jesus would come in their lifetime because it changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you live. It changes the way you live in that it profits you for eternity. So let me say this. Even if everything we teach here about the end times is completely wrong and we've missed it by a million miles, you will never regret any decision that you make in your life to live as though Jesus were coming back in your lifetime. You'll be glad you did that for eternity. When we get to heaven, I'll say you're welcome. You will never, ever, ever regret living your life as though Jesus is coming back. You'll never regret storing up treasure in heaven and not on earth. It's not like you're going to get to eternity and go, I'm here forever, but Jesus didn't come in my lifetime. Sure wish I hadn't invested in this mansion that I'm going to live in for eternity and instead chosen to prioritize my home that I lived in for 50 years at the most. You'll never think that way. You'll always be glad that you lived in an expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. 
What difference does it make if you're watching for his return? What difference does it make if you're living for it? Well, whatever the answers are to those questions, Jesus makes it clear the result is going to be blessings. If you live that way, you're going to be blessed in eternity. So let's dive into those questions as we keep reading and work our way towards some answers. So Jesus now tells a completely different story. You've got the master. He's coming back. His servants that are ready for him are going to be blessed. Now there's a different quick story. Verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So track with me here, because I think I'm going to get you with something. In the first illustration, the person who shows up is the master, and his faithful servants are awaiting his return. It's a welcome return. In the second illustration, the person showing up at the house is a thief who's breaking in, and the master of the house is taken by surprise. Both stories are describing the same event. The moment in the future when Jesus comes for his church in the event known as the rapture. So if you're not convinced, just hang with me as we work through this and I think it'll become clear. The rapture is Jesus coming for his church. The second coming is Jesus returning to the earth with his church. The rapture, we leave the earth. The second coming, we return with Jesus to the earth. Again, if you're unclear on this, go study Revelation. So here Jesus is talking about the rapture. So if these are both stories about the same event from two different perspectives, then in the second story, who is the master of the house? Who is the master of the house? Master of the house is the master of the world. Paul called him the God of this age. Jesus Christ, three times in John's gospel, called this person the ruler of this world. It's Satan. In the second story, the master of the house is Satan. And we're going to unpack this. Wait a minute, are you saying Jesus is the thief? Yes. To Satan. To Satan, Jesus will be an unwelcome intruder who catches him by surprise. Satan has no idea when the rapture is going to happen. To the believer, Jesus will be the returning master. To the non-believer and to Satan, Jesus will be an unwelcome intruder. And what's fascinating is that this same idea, the same imagery is used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians. When he wrote to the Thessalonian church about the rapture, Paul talked about this exact scenario. So keep a finger or a paper in Luke 12 and turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 with me if you would. 1 Thessalonians 5. I know it's a tougher, smaller book. Uh, There's no shame in turning to your index if you need to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5. Everyone who has those like... uh, thumb markers in your Bible are like suckers and you're already there. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul says this, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, so he's talking to them, believers, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes, and then underline, as a thief in the night. For when they, not you, when they, non-believers, say, peace and safety, Then sudden destruction comes upon them, underline them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they, underline they, shall not escape. So I'm going to explain the thief thing in a moment, but I want to explain verse 3 first. The rapture is going to take place at a time when people are crying out for peace and safety. Peace and safety, that's what we want. It's going to be a time when you look at everything the Bible says about the end times, when people are going to want peace and safety so badly, they're going to be willing to give unlimited power to anyone who will guarantee them 
peace, and safety. It's going to happen at a time when things seem on the verge of falling apart in the world. And if you've been paying attention to world events over the last 15 years, then you know that if you are a government and even a Western democracy, there's one very, very easy way to make the public give you unlimited power to listen in on every phone call you make, read your mail, spy on you through your webcam. There's one way to make people willingly give you that. You make them scared. People will say, I'll let the government do anything if you'll guarantee me peace and safety. We've seen that right now. I'm personally astounded by the personal freedoms and liberties that people are willing to give up for safety. It's astounding. And it's going to be that sort of environment, people crying out for peace and safety. But what's also interesting is in other places where Jesus talks about the end times, he makes it clear that the rapture is going to happen at a time when there's some very normal things going on as well. He says people are going to be getting married. People are going to be buying and selling stuff, working in fields, doing jobs. So it's going to be this very strange time in history where people are desperate for peace and safety. And it seems like everything's on the verge of falling apart, but life is also going on as normal at the same time in much of the world. When Jesus says, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. I really want you to notice that Paul doesn't say you. He says them. So he's distinguishing between the destiny of believers and the destiny of non-believers. And if you've been through Revelation with us, then you know that after the rapture, after the church is removed, things go downhill really fast. You also know that in Thessalonians, Paul says the Antichrist can't even be revealed until he who restrains is removed. So until the church is removed from the earth, the Antichrist can't even be revealed. And we notice that illustration there that horrible things are going to unfold like labor pains, contractions. So these devastating things are going to get more and more intense and they're going to get closer and closer together. So now notice this. That destruction is what's going to happen to them. Now contrast that, verse 4, but you, underline, you brethren, you've got a different destiny, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So did you catch that? Jesus is not going to come like a thief in a night to believers. That day is not going to be something that's going to need to be feared by those who love Jesus because it's not going to lead to destruction for believers, but rather blessings. Paul goes on in verse 5, you, underline you, are all sons of light and sons of the day. Underline we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now Paul tells us what we should do. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So are you picking up on the parallel to what Jesus is talking about in Luke 12? Those in the darkness who don't love the Lord, they've got their robes down. There's no need to be doing anything and they're sleeping. There's no urgency about the times they're living in. Those in the light who love the Lord are staying busy serving, ready for his welcome return. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Now don't get hung up on the drinking issue. He's not talking about a glass of wine or a few beers. He's talking about a person who's completely inebriated, just wasted. And he's making an even bigger point. His point is that those who are in the darkness get drunk because they can't see a reason not to. In the darkness, it seems fine. But for those who are in the light, we got to be ready for Jesus at any and every moment. And so we don't want to get caught up in behaviors and situations 
where the arrival of Jesus would catch us like a thief in the night and be an unwelcome surprise. Instead of getting caught up in behavior that only seems okay in the dark, we should be putting on, Paul says, the breastplate of faith, underline faith and love, underline love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation, underline hope. Do you realize that your salvation is a process? The, the moment you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters your life, and he begins this process called sanctification, which is making you more like Jesus. Now, unbelievably, even when you die, there will still be more work to do with that sanctification process. But the good news is, it's instantaneously complete upon the moment you leave this earthly body. And it's complete when you arrive in the moment of Jesus. When you arrive in Jesus, the process of sanctification being finished becomes glorification. You're now glorified. You're not just in a human body dealing with sin and issues. You're in a whole new body, free from sin, and you have been glorified. And that's a good thing. Paul says that our minds, the way a helmet would surround your head, our minds, our thoughts are to be on the process of salvation. Remembering that, that we're in the middle of a process and we're on our way to the presence of the Lord. Paul says that's what should give you hope. That's what should cause you to not just get comfortable in the darkness and begin acting like you're in the darkness. Instead of clinging to meaningless and destructive behaviors, we're supposed to deal with those difficult seasons in life and those moments where we just wish it was over. We're supposed to deal with those moments by remembering our salvation. We're not sitting still. We're moving towards the presence of God. We're on our way somewhere. Paul says hope in that. Don't put your hope in self-medicating. Put your hope in where you're going. Hope in your salvation rather than the things of the world. Have faith that the master will return and let your actions be driven by love for the one who saved us. And now Paul tells us about why we should love God. Why we should love him so much. Verse 9. You want to underline this whole verse. I love this. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you just keep underlining. Who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify. That just means encourage one another, just as you also are doing. These verses are so, so precious to me. Because there's no downside to living a life that's driven by a love for God. So whether you meet him while you're awake, whether you're raptured, or whether you die before that and you meet him while you're asleep, you're going to be together with him. And I don't want to get too sidetracked, but there's something I need to point out while we're on this verse. Uh, during those seven years in the end times, when there's massive upheaval on the earth following the rapture, there's going to be catastrophic things happening on a scale we can't even fathom. And these things are described at length in the book of Revelation. And they really kick off in chapter 6 of Revelation where we read these verses. I think I put it on your outline. I'm going to ask you to underline a couple of things. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, and then underline, wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of, and then underline, his wrath has come. And who's able to stand? So even across all of those seven years, these terrible things that are unfolding on the earth are the result of whose wrath? The Lamb's wrath. Jesus. These things that are taking place during those seven years are the wrath of the Lamb. And please understand this because it's so important. 
Because people will say, oh, well, you believe the rapture is going to happen before those seven years because you, you don't want to deal with the idea of pain and suffering. And that's not it at all. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You'll have tribulation. We don't think that we're going to escape trouble. Trouble has plagued the Christian church since it was formed. It was born in persecution. It exploded in persecution. And 99% of history since the church was formed is the church going through trouble and being persecuted. But there's a big difference. That trouble, that persecution, is the result of the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. Never the wrath of God. You will never find any evidence or any supporting arguments in the whole New Testament for the idea that God will allow his children to experience his wrath. He never pours down his wrath on his children, ever. His children are always sheltered and protected from it. What did Paul tell us? What did Paul tell us? He said, God did not appoint us to wrath. He's speaking about the wrath of God. How do we know? Because Paul experienced the wrath of man in an unbelievable way. You know it. Shipwrecked, beaten within an inch of his life, on the verge of death many times. So when he says we're not appointed for wrath, he's not talking about not experiencing trouble. He's talking about the wrath of God. He says, we never have an appointment with that. He was even martyred for his faith. But more importantly, we know Paul's talking about the wrath of God because he says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than experiencing his wrath, we're going to experience salvation and deliverance from that. So when his wrath is being poured out on the whole earth, there's only one way for those who are his to escape it. And that's salvation, to go and be with him instead. The earth has a future appointment with the wrath of God. Believers do not. Believers have and will experience the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. We will experience pain, suffering, and death in this life. But the Bible is explicit. It's crystal clear. Believers will never, ever experience the wrath of God. Can I get an amen for that? Better amen that. That's good. I also took the time to share that because once again, the theme of what Jesus is saying is my return is going to mean blessings for you. Blessings for you. And wrath for those who don't love me. So write this down. The rapture, Jesus coming for his church, will mean blessings for those who are his and wrath for those who are not. Blessings for those who are his and wrath for those who are not. And then turn back to Luke 12 with me. Luke 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 41. Luke 12, 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful servant and wise steward, underline steward, whom his master will make and then underline ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed, underline blessed, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. A steward in this context is simply someone who manages someone else's assets. Someone who manages someone else's assets. If you have a stockbroker managing stocks and investments for you, he is a steward of your finances. So Jesus says, if someone's a wise and faithful steward, and is wise and faithful, even when their master isn't around, his master will end up blessing him by making him ruler over his whole household. So the point is simple. Everything we have comes from the Lord. We're simply stewards of what we've been given in this life. And that applies to our time, our talent, and our treasure. So write this down. 
If we will faithfully steward what God has given us, he will one day give us more to steward than we can possibly imagine. If we will faithfully steward what God has given us in this life, then in the next life, he'll give us more to steward than we can possibly imagine. And the great thing about that is the question isn't how much do you have. The question is how faithful are you being with what you have. Verse 45, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. That's a troubling passage. And I studied up on this and some pastors who I listen to and deeply respect gave several different explanations. One said, this is Jesus using exaggerated verbiage to make a point. He doesn't literally mean what he says. It's like when you say, if you do that again, I'm gonna smack you a million times. You're not actually gonna do it. But they're saying, this is just Jesus using exaggerated verbiage to make a point. That's one interpretation. The other is, oh no, Jesus isn't talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal rewards. You're gonna be cut out from receiving any eternal rewards. And those are both more palatable explanations Those are both easier to digest than what I think is the truth because here's how we read the Bible. We take the Bible literally unless we have a compelling reason not to. And I don't like the way that sounds is not a compelling reason. I don't like the way that makes me feel is not a compelling reason. I don't think we have any reason to not take the words of Jesus literally in this case. And Jesus seems to be describing the person who knows what the gospel is Who knows that the Bible teaches Jesus is going to come back one day. Maybe this is the person who's raised in church, had Christian parents or had Christian family members who often talked about the Lord. Maybe this is someone who went to church for a season. Whatever the specifics are, this person knows the gospel and they know Jesus is supposed to come back one day. Yet they've chosen to take the position, you know, it's not really going to happen. It's just kind of a myth. Life goes on. Everything goes on. And they've decided that instead of living under the lordship of Jesus, they're just going to live however they want to. And based upon what Jesus says here, they were never saved. That's what Jesus is saying. I'll appoint you your portion with unbelievers. You were never saved. And I know what Jesus is describing is terrifying. He's saying, you're an unbeliever. And the fact that you knew the gospel isn't going to do you any good when I come back because you never responded to the gospel. You never said, yes, God, I want you to be in my life. It's heavy. There's also a second lesson in these two verses. It applies to all of us. Jesus links sinful behavior to a lack of fear of the Lord. He links sinful behavior to a lack of fear of the Lord. And man, is this ever true for you and I. If you've had little kids, then you know. Sometimes they'll do things they shouldn't be doing. And they'll say things they shouldn't be saying. And they'll do it because they think they're out of view or out of earshot. You know, the Germans have a word called schadenfreude. That's a great word because we don't have anything like it in English. And it means shameful joy. It means being happy or experiencing joy, but for a reason that's pretty shameful. And schadenfreude is that feeling you get as a parent when you have little kids and you walk in and you catch them and there is just nothing they can do to deny what they were doing. There's no explanation they can come up with. And there's that sick part of you that is like, aha, I got you. See, you all know what I'm talking about. Don't pretend like you're better than me. You know what I'm talking about. And that sort of moment. Why were the kids doing that? Well, they they were doing that because they thought mom or dad weren't watching. 
But what happens if they hear your footsteps coming down the hall? Everything away. The fear of mom or the fear of dad produces wisdom in those children. Produces wisdom. When we pursue things that God says are not for us, we're revealing that we don't really believe he could come back at any moment. We don't really believe that. We don't really believe that's possible. And so we're not fearful of getting caught. What does the Bible say about a fear of the Lord? It says it's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. So write this down because here's the truth. When our fear of the Lord begins to decrease, our foolish behavior will inevitably increase. When our fear of the Lord begins to decrease, our foolish behavior will inevitably increase. This has been an issue since the early years of the church. In fact, Peter wrote about it in his second epistle. I was able to fit this on your outline so you can follow along with me. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter. He said, scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts. So these people are going to show up and they're going to have a mocking, scoffing attitude and they're going to be enjoying their sin, not worrying about it. And here's how they're going to be scoffing and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus isn't coming back soon. Ever since the early church fathers died, life's just continued going on, just like it's going to keep going on. Now let me ask you this. Does this sound like something a churched person or an unchurched person would say? You see, I don't think an unchurched person has an opinion about the timeline of the return of Jesus. I don't think an unchurched person is going to refer to the founders of the church as the fathers. I think this is a churched person who's scoffing at the idea that Jesus is really coming back. And because of that, they're living however they want to live. We see this all the time. Churches all over the Western world come to church, we're sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend, but we don't care. It's no big deal. Just come to church like normal. Show up for church every week, regularly viewing porn. No, that's not a problem. Nothing really needs to change. Here's Peter's warning. For this, they willfully forget. Really get that phrase, they willfully forget. They know what the Bible says, but they choose to forget it. They choose to ignore it. This they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Here's what Peter's saying. Hey, remember the great flood that destroyed the whole earth, save those who were in the ark? Yet all those people who died were laughing at Noah, mocking him, calling him crazy for years, up until the moment water started falling from the sky and rising out of the earth, and by then it was too late. They were scoffers too. They were mockers too. And then Peter says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Hey, and just so you know, God has a plan to destroy the earth again, only this time it's gonna be by fire. So those mockers and those scoffers who say Jesus isn't coming back, he said they forget. The earth's already been destroyed one time. And nobody thought it was going to happen. God's made it clear. It's going to happen again. They would be wise to take him seriously. Then he says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not being lazy about coming back as some count slackness. But is long suffering. He's patient toward us. 
not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. When I was studying this this week, it's the first time a thought hit me about this. And I think this is so interesting because Peter is writing to believers in the first century A.D. So these are believers in 70 A.D., 80 A.D.-ish, who are getting antsy about the return of Jesus. And, and it hit me this time, that sure is weird verbiage for the Lord to cause Paul to use. Because if they're getting antsy and at 70 or 80 A.D., wouldn't a more logical thing be to tell them to the Lord a day is as a decade? And a decade is a day? But Paul chooses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write, a day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as a day. It would seem to be, when you read it and you actually go there, you're like, Paul, that's not really a good argument to convince them that the Lord is coming back soon. Because you're telling them it could be a thousand years, could be two thousand years. Very, very interesting. It seems like something that makes more sense being written for us today than it did for them in the first century A.D. Peter's point is, hey, don't think God's forgotten about the return of Jesus. He hasn't. He's simply being patient to give people more time to turn to him. Jesus is coming back. Don't forget it and don't act like he's not. Let's go back to Luke 12. We're going to be in verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. And he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. You see God is the ultimate fair judge and he will judge every person according to the amount of revelation they received in their life. How much of God did they get to see? How much information did they have to make a decision with? Paul writes in Romans answering the classic question, what about the man in the jungle who's never heard the gospel? And Paul says, listen, just in creation, the stars at night, the trees, the birds, the animals, just in creation, there is enough evidence for a man to say there is a God. There is a maker, there is a creator. Paul writes that God put that inside every man, that logical explanation. And the only reason man doesn't believe that is because his soul, his conscience says it, and the man says, I reject that idea because I do not want to live under a God. Or I would rather make my own God. So Paul says even the man in the jungle has received revelation in creation. Even the man in the jungle has been given a conscience by the Lord. There's no culture in the world where it's considered honorable to kill your friend and steal his wife. And the cultures never got together and said, let's put together a few rules of basic human society. It's just something imprinted into the conscience of every man and every woman. God says, well, that person's going to be judged according to how they responded to my revelation in creation and how they responded to their conscience. Did they reject it? And God will judge each person Fairly. However, these last two verses also make it clear that for those who have rejected God, there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell based on how much revelation each person received. It's going to be hard for some of us to hear this, but we need to because it's true. And if we have lost family or, or friends, this needs to provoke us to pray for them with an increasing desperation. The person who grew up in the church has received a lot of revelation. They've received a lot. They've been given a lot they're going to have a lot to answer for when they stand before God. You know, the Bible has never been more available to Western civilization than it is now. 
Practically any church will give you a Bible for free. Organizations will send you one in the mail. You can read any translation you want for free on your phone or on your computer. You can dive into the Hebrew and the Greek without knowing Hebrew or Greek for free on blueletterbible.com. There's just a wealth of information. We've been given so much in Western society. And we're going to have a lot to answer for. The person who rejected God by rejecting only the evidence of him in creation and their own conscience is still going to be condemned, but they're going to have less to answer for than the person who knows what the gospel is. The point is that nobody's going to be able to claim ignorance on the day of judgment. Nobody. And everybody's received some sort of revelation of God. He goes on, verse 49. Jesus says this. Man, this is about as un-Jesus as Jesus gets in these next few verses. I came to send fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. What? That fire that the earth is going to one day be destroyed with that Peter talked about. That's what he's referring to. Jesus is simply saying, hey, the earth has an appointment in the future to be destroyed by fire. By me. And Jesus is saying, I I wish we were already at that point. Not because he wants to watch the world burn. But he says that, you know, if we were at that point, then... You and all believers would be with me. We'd be in heaven. We'd be beginning eternity, the next chapter, and this would all be over. Jesus is saying, I wish we were there already, but first I have to go through a baptism, and the baptism he's talking about is his crucifixion and death. And Jesus says this because he's not looking forward to his crucifixion or death. He's not looking forward to it. And that doesn't diminish what Jesus did in any way. It makes it all the more amazing because it tells us Jesus was under no illusions as to how awful the cross would be. He was under no illusions as to how terrible it would be to actually take the weight of the sin of the world upon himself and be separated from his father for the first time in eternity. Jesus knew how awful that was going to be. He was fully aware and he still went. He still went. He didn't go in ignorance. He still went. Praise God. Verse 51, Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. You see, pop culture Jesus would never say something like that. But here he is in his own words saying, the reason I came is to draw a line in the sand. Those who are with me, those who are against me. I've come to cause division. Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection demand a decision from everyone. They erase the middle position. Can't be in the place of I'm still deciding. Then you're against him. You're against him. And Jesus' words expose the popular lie which is going around the church today that, hey, if you're offending anyone, if anyone doesn't like you, then you're not doing life like Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus, who I think is probably more likable than you and I. Jesus said, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all. Not at all. But division. Verse 53, father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I'm always floored by how upfront Jesus is about the cost of following him. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you are experiencing this right now in your lives. And isn't it true that if you walk into your work or your school tomorrow and somebody says, what did you do this weekend? And somebody says, you know, well, I'm a Wiccan, so... Uh, I went and danced naked in the forest with some friends to to welcome spring. They'll go, oh, that's cool, that's cool. 
And if someone else says, well, you know, I believe in transcendental meditation, so I, so I just sat in a log, uh, sat on a log in the forest for two hours and became one with the universe. They'd go, oh, that's, that's neat, that's neat. And if you say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so I went to church on Sunday, the response is, why you got to be weird? Why you got to creep everybody out? Why you got to make it awkward? What's your problem? Why you got to do that? And there's a reason for that. There's only two sides. There's Jesus and there's everything else. I was thinking about this again this week. When you choose Jesus, you're choosing to be against everything else. And there are things under that everything else category that seem like they can't get along. But there's a famous saying that goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Jesus is the enemy of Satan. And so there are different belief systems that should contradict each other, but they're really in harmony against Jesus and those who are his because there's really only two sides. There's Jesus and there's everything else. And when you join with Jesus, Jesus says you shouldn't be surprised when everything else is against you. Verse 54, then he also said to the multitudes, underline to the multitudes. So understand now, Jesus is not addressing his disciples, he's addressing the multitudes. And he says, whenever you see a cloud rising out the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there'll be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Underline this time. There are and there were over 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, the Savior God would send. Daniel even prophesied Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, to the day. He prophesied it to the day. So Jesus says to this crowd who's almost entirely Jewish, you hypocrites, you can look at the sky and see the weather coming, but you can't see me right in front of you fulfilling all 300 prophecies. You can't see the obvious, I'm the Messiah. You are unwilling to see, so you can't see. And what had happened is people had become very casual about the scriptures. They had begun to say, well, I know what the Bible says, but you can't really believe that he's gonna be born in Bethlehem and uh, he's really gonna ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Come on, not today, not this year, not in our lifetime. They talked a good game, but when push came to shove, they didn't really believe what the Bible said. And if we look at the theme of this whole teaching, it's Jesus telling his disciples, I'm coming again. I'm coming again. And the warning would seem to be, don't miss Jesus when he comes again, because he will come again. Verse 57, yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. You might want to go through those and just underline all those you and your reference because I want you to understand Jesus is saying this directly to non-believers. He's not saying there's a guy who gets taken to court in this town. He says you. You, he's getting right in their face, you, and he's probably pointing at them as he says this. And what's it all about? Well, in those days, you could be thrown in prison for not paying a debt. But here's the awful thing. You'd be left in prison until that debt was settled. And while you're in prison, you would have no way of earning money to pay that debt. So you'd be at the mercy of somebody else to pay it for you. What Jesus is saying is, hey, if you knew there was even a chance you'd be thrown in prison, you would do whatever it takes to settle the issue 
before it got to court. You wouldn't even want to stand before the judge because it might be over at that point. And Jesus is saying, you will stand before me, the righteous judge, one day. And I'm here now to offer you a chance to settle your debt. And the debt is a sin debt. The fact that we've all rejected Jesus. We've all rejected him. He says, I'm offering you a chance to settle that debt with me before the day of judgment. And if you don't settle that debt now, one day you'll stand before me and I will judge. And you'll be thrown into prison. You'll be thrown into hell where you'll stay till your debt is paid. And you'll never be able to pay that debt. You'll be there forever. You'll hear pastors, preachers, and TV evangelists say things like, you need to give your life to Jesus because he loves you. And he does. You'll hear them say, you need to give your life to Jesus because he has a plan for your life. And it's true. He does. You need to give your life to Jesus because he wants to bless your life. That's true too. He wants to bless your life. But Jesus doesn't talk about much of that stuff here. Jesus talks about a different reason to give your life to him. The most important reason to give your life to him. And that reason is we're all going to stand before him one day. And that moment will either mean unbelievable blessings or unimaginable wrath. Jesus says you need to give your life to me because you have a debt that you can't pay. And I'm your only hope to settle that debt. I'm your only hope. Jesus can be that direct because he's telling the truth. He can be that direct because he bled and died to settle that debt for you and I. He can be that direct because he is the judge that we're all going to stand before one day. More than any other reason, we need to be saved. We need to give our lives to Jesus because without him, we're under condemnation. And we're guilty. We're guilty. We're under a death sentence without Jesus. We need forgiveness more than we need anything else. We need forgiveness even more than we need love or peace. We need forgiveness. And Jesus doesn't want anybody to be confused about that. If you look on your outline, I put the rest of what Peter wrote about the return of Jesus. Peter writes this. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. If you look at an atom, the way it's made up, with a nucleus and electrons and protons, what holds an atom together? Inside the nucleus, what holds those things together? Why doesn't it just break apart? And they have a term for it. You know, they call it atomic glue. But having a term for it doesn't mean that they understand how or why. And what Peter's writing about here would seem to describe that moment when he says the elements will melt with fervent heat. That moment when the God of the universe who is holding literally every atom in the universe together. He's describing the moment when the God who holds it all together just lets go. He just lets go. And it's just the entire universe exploding in fire. It will be burned up. Then he goes on and he says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, Peter asked the same question Jesus does. In light of this truth, that Jesus will return for his church, that no matter what, we will be with the Lord one day, the earth will melt with fire one day. In light of those truths, how should we live? I'm going to wrap up with these things. Firstly, if you've not made peace with Jesus by giving your life to him, you need to do that today. You are not ignorant of the truth. And Jesus has loved you enough to get you here today or to make you listen to this online. He's loved you enough to let you know that you need him because you don't know how much time you have left. You really don't know. You need to be right with God before you leave here today. Secondly, Jesus said that we're to be waiting with our robes girded, which means actively serving. And just to be plain, if this is your church and you're not serving your brothers and sisters in some way, I want to suggest that you need to be doing that. Just check the box on the back of your connection card saying you want to serve, and we'll get in touch with you. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone, but if you hear me say that, and this is your church, and there's nothing in you that goes, I need to serve in some way, I just encourage you to really examine yourself and say, why doesn't that resonate with you? Why is there no urgency about being involved, about doing what Jesus has asked? Why is there no urgency? Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you really believe that? And thirdly, if you're involved in sinful behaviors, because if you're honest, you don't have a fear of the Lord, you need to repent today. You need to turn away from those behaviors and confess, hey, Lord, I recognize that because I haven't feared you, I've begun to get involved in foolish behaviors, and and I want to stop. I want to stop. And lastly, if God's word has broken your heart for anyone in your life who doesn't know Jesus, Start praying for them again with renewed vigor, a renewed fervor. And this coming time of worship might need to be just a period of time when you're just praying for those kids who are not walking with Jesus, that brother, that sister, that mother, that father, that aunt, that uncle, that coworker, that friend. Have a heart for them and let the Holy Spirit break your heart for them. With that, let's pray. Father, this is a, this is a heavy message from your son, Jesus. But Lord, we would always rather know the truth than willingly choose to be in darkness. We would always rather know the truth. And Lord, the truth is glorious because the truth is we don't have to be in darkness. You've made a way through your son Jesus for us to have an appointment with salvation rather than an appointment with wrath. You've made a way for that to happen. So Jesus, I pray that we would hope in our salvation We would hope in where we know we're headed, where we're going. That we would love you, that we would have faith that you are indeed coming back and that one way or another we will be with the Lord. Father, help us to give credibility to the truth that you are coming back for your church. Help us to live lives that show we really believe this. We really believe this is not our home. We're going somewhere else. Jesus, if we've begun to believe things, that aren't true, if we've lost our fear of you, would would you bring it back so that we can be wise, not caught in darkness, not becoming comfortable in things that are really destructive, but Lord, restore in us a, a right fear of you and a reverence of you that we would honor you with our lives as you should be honored, Jesus. And then Father, we come together to pray 
alongside every brother and sister who's here today, who's praying for someone they love, someone they care about who doesn't know you. Jesus, our prayer is simple. Would you lead them to you? Do whatever you need to do to make that happen. Be it through blessing or kindness or tragedy or difficulty, Lord, do whatever you need to do to bring them to you. Open their hearts. Meet them in a mighty way, the way you met Paul on the road to Damascus, Lord. Overwhelm them with the reality of your truth. May they have an undeniable encounter with your son, Jesus, that you would be glorified, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.